Welcome to the teaching ministry of Pastor Deborah Grohler. We pray that you will be blessed and empowered by today's message. Well, welcome back to our, are you ready? I had to ask Michelle this. I, I was dumbfounded when she gave me the answer. Our 101st session in the book of Genesis. You got it. 101. We've gone into triple digits. <laughs> 101st session. It's like such an anniversary. And I've got a feeling we're going to be a little few more before we get done. But anyway, we are at concluded last week at chapter 46, so we're getting close. As you know, uh, there is those chapters, there's 50 chapters in Genesis, so we're heading on the tail end of this amazing book that we've been studying. And where we left off last time was Joseph was not only reunited with his brothers, but he was also reunited with Jacob. What an amazing scene we saw last week as Moses tells us that Joseph cried, and, and I can't seem to get this out of my mind, I don't know about you, but the, the way Moses penned this, um, as you know, he wrote the book of Genesis, he wrote the five first books of the, of the Bible, which we call what? The Torah or the Pentateuch, right? Pent means five. So he wrote all that, and so it says here that he cried a good while, that the wording of that is just so unique to this particular story. But when he finally saw Jacob, uh, just can't imagine, can you? I mean, remember, he had the limp, and he had that staff. And I'm sure he could almost maybe hear him before he even saw him. You know, because we all have a fragrance about us. We have a walk. We have a sound, if you will. And what a moment that was. And he cried a good while on the neck of his dad how long is a good while I, I mean it's just hard to take in the visualization of that you know i like to say i can't wait to get to heaven and see these reruns really we're going to get to see all of this when we get there right it's going to be on-demand reruns it's going to be great absolutely so we also left knowing that they came together in egypt and there was 70 of them do you remember we talked about that so before we leave chapter 46, I think you should know a few things about this number 70 and how God brought them together because the number 70 is a very significant number and it's packed with meaning. And I didn't get a chance to really go over that last week, but I want to go over it this week because numbers have value in the Bible. You know, five is a number of grace. Seven's a number of completeness or perfection. So 70 has the number seven in it. So it gives us a little hint about some things, but it comes over and over in scripture, that number 70. So it's important for us to know what it is. And the significance is this. First, 70 is seven times 10, isn't it? Yes. And seven, as we know, is that, again, that number of perfection. And 10 is often used as a number of testimony. When Naomi went back to Bethlehem, it was the 10th year. And boy, was that a testimony. Look what came out of her movement back to Bethlehem. We have Bethlehem's babe because of that, right? So that's an important number. It's, it's almost like perfect testimony. Let me put it to you this way. It's the Lord's sovereign. I think we have a screen for it. It's the Lord's sovereign Perfect sovereign work through man. It's the Lord's perfect sovereign work through man. You know, so often we want God to do the sovereign work, and he does, but he uses us to do it. 
You know, it, it's his work that, that saves people, but it's our mouths that gets them into the kingdom. Amen? So it's an interesting thing to look at. So I want you to consider these examples before we leave chapter 46 on God specifically choosing the... Hey, there could have been 90 that, went, that gathered in Egypt. Why 70? Because of this phrase. Because he's, we're going to see today, and until we're done looking at Joseph, that there was a sovereign work being done through this man, Joseph. Okay? And so consider this when we look at the number 70. Egypt mourned 70 days after the death of Joseph. There's much more than I'm giving you. Moses was given 70 elders. The Lord selected 70 elders to prophesy in the wilderness. 70 years was appointed for Israel to be held captive outside of the land. Later, when the Hebrew text was translated to Greek, who knows what that, what that means? When the Hebrew a word was translated to Greek. That's called something. Does anybody know what that word is? Septuagint. It's the Septuagint. So when that was translated, the Septuagint, in other words, was made, the Greek text translated into Greek. Seventy Jews were involved with that. Can you see that? It's God's perfect sovereign work being done through man, okay? Seventy leaders of Israel do that. There were 70 in the council of the Sanhedrin. And these 70 begin another aspect of God's sovereign work that we're going to see today as the nation of Israel will be birthed in Egypt. So these 70 have a, a horrendous, amazing, perfecting, sovereign work that's going to take place. As you know, and I keep bringing this to you, that there's going to be a literal nation coming out of 70. And you know that that is the work of God behind those things. That's why Zechariah 4.10 I know you read Zechariah all the time. <laughs> Zechariah 4.10 says, Do not despise the days of small beginnings. God often does miraculous exploits through very small things. He fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men. Probably it was more like 15,000 at least. That's the only um, miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. And he did it by just the simplicity of a little boy's lunch. He was willing to offer it to him. He can do great things with just a little, amen? He said, don't despise the days of small beginning. See, he's calling now to say amen to that. Amen. So chapter 46 ends with the 70 united preparing to enter into Egypt for what they thought would be the remainder of the famine. We know we're about two to three years into the seven-year famine. But what would really happen is they would remain there for four generations. Some 400 years is how they would remain there. But it was not all in vain because we have come to learn that during those 400 years, he was going, they went in with 70, but they were coming out with millions. Amazing what God does. It's amazing how, how we think we need to understand everything, but he is always behind the scenes doing his perfect sovereign work. Amen. So if anybody's 70 in the room, this is your blessed day. Amen. Yes. Okay. So, okay. So chapter 47, we're going to turn over now. Joseph goes before Pharaoh on their behalf. That's the theme of what we're going to be looking at. And let's start out with verses one through four, and we will go from there. 
Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all their possessions have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Verse three. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? Now we looked at ending last time, this whole concept of he was priming the pump, if you will, to, to tell them about this whole shepherding thing. Because we came to find out at the close of chapter 46, it says that the Egyptians loathe shepherds. We found that out last week. So here he's going before Pharaoh, and he's already primed them to say he's going to be asking you this question. Let's see what happens. And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. Verse 4. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. First of all, for those of you who are new to Bible study, Canaan is Israel. That's old, it's an old name for what's present day Israel today, okay? So what's important to know is the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob promised them the land of Israel. What in the world are they doing in Egypt? Well, they, he took them out, he multiplied them, and how many know there's a book called Exodus? Yes. And they left Egypt and they went back there, okay? But he, the way he does things is not always the way that we perceive to do things, is it? And so he goes on to say that we've come to dwell in the land because our servants have no pastures, flocks, for the famine is severe, okay? In Israel, in other words. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So Joseph, being a type of savior to the Middle East, because he is the provisionary for the entire world at this point. I mean, who would think that a guy thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, would end up being the prime minister of the only nation that has any food and any provision for anybody? Whew. Touch your neighbor and say, you just never know. You just never know. That's exactly right. So... There was no chance that Pharaoh was going to deny his family entrance even into this most fertile area of Egypt known as Goshen. And Goshen means to draw near. And draw near they would because God was going to do a mighty miracle in that place where he was going to release them because of its 10th plague, which when we go to the Passover in the next couple of weeks, you'll learn all about this. But a mighty thing he was going to do in the midst. But Pharaoh was so respectful of Joseph. We studied and have come to know through him that everywhere Joseph went, he just rose up to the top like oil and water. You just can't keep the oil down, okay? Because the anointing always rises, okay? It always rises. You cannot keep anointing down. It is yoke-destroying. Yes, I said destroying. It doesn't just, just affect the yoke. It destroys the yoke. That's why times like we just had in worship, see, we, we, we just sit in the presence of God. Because when he feels welcome to come in, when his spirit has, has a sensing that, that the church desire his presence, and he comes in, his anointing comes with him. And you can accomplish more in five minutes on your face after a song called We Bow Low than you can trying to do yourself for the next 20 years. Because his yoke is a burden lifter and a yoke destroyer. So when you're feeling yoked, get in the anointing. Because that's what will destroy it, amen? So there's no way the Pharaoh 
was going to come against her or be in opposition in any way what Joseph wanted because he has saved the nation. And we're going to find out before this chapter's over, he not only saved the nation, he prospered that nation as the most prosperous nation in all the world, so much that everyone was coming. And I want to just throw something out that we'll probably spend a little more time next week. Remember, we've been looking at Joseph as a type of Christ. There's a topology there, a typology that shows us that. This is the picture of the millennium. See, the millennium is when all the nations are going to come to Jerusalem. That's going to be the provision center, if you will. They're all going to come worship Jesus there. In fact, Zechariah tells us we're going to actually celebrate, what? The Feast of Tabernacles there. So I say we might as well just figure out what it's like now so we're all ready. And then you can be tour guides when all the other churches go, Feast of Tabernacles, what in the world is, what's a tabernacle? You can say, well, step over here and let me show you. I can tell you all about this. Yeah, see, this is why this is good. We come to faith school every single week. So again, not only was he going to be in agreement with Joseph and what he wanted, but Joseph set up this shepherding situation because we found out that there's a caste system in Egypt and shepherds were at the bottom of the barrel. So by explaining they were shepherds, put them in a separating place, which is what God wanted them anyway to be. Okay, are you following me? So he was not going to come against that whatsoever. His request was granted with instant approval and let's see what happened in verses 5 and 6. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best land. Oh, well, thank you, Pharaoh. Appreciate that. I love that, don't you, when the enemy just gives you the best, right? Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So they weren't only going to get the best land, they were going to have state positions with summers off, four weeks paid vacation, and full pensions. I mean, this is really good. You know, this is just absolutely amazing when you see this. They would be well taken care of. That's what the intention of the text is trying to tell us here. All this set up Israel to be separate from the Egyptian culture. It was all a se 70 that's going to be the word we're going to keep going back to today. Seventy, that perfect sovereign usage that God did his work through man. And he did it in this very way. So he, they were set up to be separate and not only be separate, but to be distinct. Okay? Distinct is what their nation would be. We discussed all that last week, so get the CD if you don't, you know, if you didn't hear that. Now realize the other reason that they were there, I was thinking about this over the weekend, because the Egyptian, if you, you know, I, I would like to go to Egypt. I'd like us to do one time out of our Israel trip to make an extension to Egypt because those pyramids, I mean, th these are amazing things. These were smart people. They had wisdom. And God, obviously, is the, is the beginning of all wisdom, so nothing comes from any kind of knowledge without him. But for some reason, he allowed them to have it. So another reason that the, that the Israel was taken out of Canaan and put there was so that they could gain wisdom. They would learn mathematics. They would learn architectural stuff. They would learn how to build things. They're going to build the corporate center of the world known as the temple. And they learned some of these things by being here. Just amazing when you put this whole thing together, how God sets us up for things. Amen? So they were not just distinct. They also were learned people in the time they were there. We, too, are in Egypt. We can learn 
from the world. There's no doubt about it because it all comes from him. All of it. We can learn from doctors, even though we have a great physician. He still gives them wisdom how to take your appendix out. Okay? But the point of the matter is, my question to you today is, we're in Egypt, but how much of Egypt is in you? Are we, in, a, in essence, living in a Goshen area of our own? Are we, are we in this world? Because Paul was very clear to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, getting the leaven out, all those kinds of things that we've been talking about, you know, over the course of time that we've studied together. Because it takes a mental ascent and, and wisdom, and it takes knowledge from the Lord every day to be mindful, to be in Egypt, but not let Egypt in you. See, Moses went as far as being raised from an infant in Egypt. He didn't just show up there because there was a famine, but he stayed separate from them. He was in Egypt his entire growing. He looked like an Egyptian, but inside of him was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's a message for us today. That's a message for us today. In a world where we almost unconsciously think, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, there's transgender bathrooms. And, you know, what are we going to do about it? We've got to do something. We can't just sit around and take part in this craziness. We really can't. We have to really have a voice, and the church has lost its voice. Because we're so worried about what somebody's wearing or what they're saying about us or how big their church is that we miss the whole point of what the church is. We're to be kingdom builders. Whatever size, shape, and variety, or color, and whatever you are, you have a job to do. We're here to do a mission. We are not here just to wait until Jesus comes. He's waiting for us to do something so we can come. Amen? And that's exactly what we see here. So let's look at verse 7 and look at some, some issues right there. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob. So, you know, he brought five in. And I want to just say we read that. We don't know what the five were, why five, other than grace. That would be pretty easy to figure out. But it doesn't list which five they were. We don't know. You know, I'm wondering, as I know the context and the narrative of the story, did he bring the ones that look the most disheveled of the 12 so they'd be more likely to end up in Goshen? Just saying. Remember, there was a point here that Joseph was trying to get them separate. God was using him. He was using the 70 for his perfect sovereign plan to be done. Interesting here that we look at verse 7. He brings his father Jacob in and sets him before Pharaoh. Now, this must have been a sight because he's 130 years old. He's got the cane. He's got the limp. He's got everything that we've already learned. And he's walking in. And look at the next thing that happens. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Something is wrong with this picture. Who's doing the blessing here? Who's, who should be doing the blessing here, okay? Because as Pharaoh looks at this frail, aged, 130-year-old patriarch, little did he know that the great power that was in him, he could not have known what was really in him and the call that he had on his life. This heathen, Pharaoh, had no idea that before him stood someone who would be called throughout the ages the great appellative, which is a title, he worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For eternity, we will, we, will, we will hear that. How could this heathen of a leader know as he looked in the natural with what he saw? You know, 
probably disheveled. These are herdsmen shepherds. You know, they didn't go get their, you know, polo aftershave on before they came in, right? I, I mean, he probably thought this was a joke. And he comes in there and he blesses them. I mean, this must have really took Pharaoh way back off his rocker. And remember what Jacob's walking into. He's not walking into an unzipped tent. He's coming into an Egyptian palace that is decadent and opulent beyond our imagination. It, it, why is this? I'll tell you why. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute um, understanding of Scripture to know what's happening here because it's satisfying Scripture. I want you to see what it says here about the greater blessing, the lesser blessing the greater. Look at Hebrews 7. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. The lesser is blessed by the better. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Deborah. Are we like comparing people here or what are we doing? No, we're talking about spiritualness here. We're talking about what really makes a person, not their exterior, not whether they have a castle and a palace and a big throne, because greater is he that's in us than anybody that's in the world. Okay, sometimes we're so focused on the exterior, we don't know the riches that lie within us. At any time, at any time we have that. And, and Hebrews 7 tells us, Pharaoh was indeed blessed, I will tell you, by the presence of Israel. Amen. He did receive that blessing. I mean, don't you, isn't this another on-demand rewind? What did he say? I want to know what that blessing was. What did Jacob say to Pharaoh? A blessing requires us to open our mouth, doesn't it? So what did he say? We just don't know. The word doesn't tell us. But may I say, this is our pattern too. As we look at this take place, the Lord, again, has left us here to accomplish a mission. We are to be a blessing. That is part of the Abrahamic covenant. You will be blessed and you will be a blessing. What good is it if you're only blessed and you get so fat on blessing that you're, you're, you're no earthly good. Heaven bound, but no earthly good. See, that is the picture of, of the, the, the Dead Sea. You know, the Dead Sea is, is a contained area. It ends. It receives water from Mount Hermon down the tertiary streams and whatnot to the, um, to the Jordan, to the Sea of Galilee, to the Jordan, and it dumps into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is nothing lives there. That's why it's called dead. Amen. No fish, no plants, no nothing. It's dead. And I think spiritually that's an example for us to understand. It's dead because it only receives and it never gives anything. And we're dead too if we only are gimme, gimme. My name is Jimmy, gimme, gimme. Right? That's the absolute truth. And so that's our mission. We're to be a blessing. We're here to be ambassadors for Christ. We're here to be ambassadors for Christ, to make every day a day to rub shoulders with the citizens of this foreign land. You know that song, this land is your land, this land is my land? That's bad theology. Really, it's your land, but my land's up above. I'm here on assignment. Okay? Yeah, I mean, we're here to rub shoulders with the citizens of this foreign land to represent our government. You know, we've been on this faith invasion study on Fridays, and we've been really talking about the kingdom. We've been really talking about 
what an ambassador is and, and how that relates to us in the present day a position and mission that we have. But the whole concept of an ambassador is you represent your sending government. The American ambassador to Israel, which will soon be in Jerusalem, hallelujah, it's going to be leaving Tel Aviv. I'm declaring that in Jesus' name. In our lifetime, in this president's time. Yes. What happens? He's not over there with a yarmulke, you know, eating matzah every single day. He might be eating matzah, but he's not wearing a yarmulke. Why? Because he's representing America. See, that's what you, you are here as a kingdom daughter. You're representing the sending government, which is the kingdom of God. And we can't get intermingled with the affairs of the foreign place that we've been assigned to. Right? Because you will be an ineffective ambassador if you do that. Amen? What is our job? Our job is to invite them to be immigrants. I know that's a word we're using right now. To the heavenly kingdom. Amen? That's what our job exactly is. So Pharaoh had, has no doubt was surprised beyond Jacob's assumption of position. He must have been dumbfounded. He must have just not know what to do with this man who comes in looking like he look, is going to just come right over and just put his hands on his head. I bless you in the name of my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He must have went, what in the world is going on here? Can you imagine? I mean, those big lions, you know, that line the walkway to the throne. They probably turned their head and looked and went, whoa, the lion of the tribe of Judah just came in. <laughs> really? There's a lion greater than us in this place, right? I mean, it must have just, he was so dumbfounded, we can almost guess from Scripture that he was because he, turned, he changed the conversation. Amen. He didn't even respond to the blessing. And we read that in verses 8 to 12, and it says this. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? <laughs> Not, repeat that, would you say? Um, tell me more, you know, tell me more about your God. No, how old are you? <laughs> it's not usually the first question you ask somebody that you just met for the first time, right? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage. I love that word. See, we're seeing that ambassador concept going on here, aren't we? We're passing through. We're sojourning, that's a Bible term we use. We're not, we're not unpacking and settling in here because we're, we're, we're only here for a pass-by, right? He said, the days of my pilgrimage are 130 years. So he's telling us he's 130. Few and evil have the days of the years of my life. You know, I just want to stop. I was thinking about that. I'm going to talk a little bit more about why he may have said evil. But few, can, can we take a hold today? Can we take a hold today? It's one thing to look at somebody's age from our age and say, wow, 130, that's a long time. Let me tell you, when you look back from 130, when you look back from 50, when you look back from 30, oh, it's but a few. It's but a few. It's, it's, it, you just can't even imagine it's but a few. And so... Doesn't matter how old you are, that concept remains. He said that these days are few and have been evil, the days of the years of my life. And look at this, the days of the years. Look to the wording. He's, he's remembering specificness amongst those years, it appears as though, okay? And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. In other words, he hasn't reached that age yet. He's anticipating he's still got some time, is what he's saying. He's not at death's door. 
He's saying, you know, I think it was 125 that Abraham lived and Isaac was 180. He's 130. He's an adolescent. Got plenty of time, right? So he's saying that in their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Let's go down to verse 11. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had, this is Jill Brenner, you can probably see him as we're speaking now, right? As Pharaoh had commanded, and then verse 12. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all of his father's household with bread according to the number in their family. Can you imagine these family dinners? I mean, really, they have not been together for all these years. This is, this, can you imagine Sunday dinners at the old Goshen house? In, can you imagine? Must have been amazing, just absolutely amazing. So 130 years old is how old we just learned that Jacob is at this point. But what we haven't learned yet, but we'll, still, we'll see soon, even the beginnings at the close of this chapter, he's going to live another 17 years. And we talked about how poignant that was because Joseph was 17 when he was taken into slavery and sold and all. Isn't it, look at God. Look at his redeeming heart. He gives 17 back to, to, to balance the 17 that Joseph, he had with him. Who thinks like this? Touch your neighbor and say, you're God. He's awesome. Touch your other neighbor and say, he's amazing. He's awesome. I think we should give him a clap offering in this place. Hallelujah. Absolutely. So Jacob mentions Abraham and he mentions Isaac in reference to their journey and their timeline. I gave you the ages. The fact is, in this particular time period, those that serve the Lord, it's very evident. I mean, if you even look, Google it. That Google is a smart guy. Have you ever met him? He's a really smart guy. Yeah. So... Um, it's known that the people, God's people lived a lot longer than their contemporaries in the heathen world. It's just a known fact. And, and he mentions here that the, that the days were... See, she's going to kick out of it. See, he mentions here that his days were short, even though we're saying 130 is pretty long. But again, looking back, right? But he also says these days are evil. Now, some of your translations, I, I tend to read New King James and Amplified, might say things like unpleasant or the days were hard. All of these words come down to a Hebrew word called ra. And it literally is in the New King James, the right translation. It means evil. So what would he mean by that? I mean, why would he call his days? Why would he say that? Because I think what we need to understand here is the whole picture of the time we've been studying, not just Joseph, but we've been studying Jacob for a very long time. And he struggled his entire life. Even in the womb, there was a wrestling match. Amen? There was Laban and all that went on there. There was Rachel's death. There was the brothers. There was the Joseph issue. I mean, I could go on and on and list, you know, all the months that we've been studying this man. But, but Ra, or that word evil, could also be reflective of how he was perceiving some of his own thing. Not that he got stuck with these evil days, but that he actually was part of them coming to him, okay? They're a result of his own decision because his life was marked with a lot of disobedience. And disobedience is going to open the door to Ra, okay? 
There's just no absolute doubt about it because we know Jacob brought many of a hardship upon himself with his trickeries and all those kinds of things. Yet, yet, can you say yet with me? Jacob was a man given the one and only lasting inheritance that every single one of us can have, and that is the honor and the offering of, of life through the living God. God still chose him. I am so thankful. I, I almost wanted to do a whole session on this, but I'll just peruse by it for time's sake today and say, you know, when we look at Abraham and we see left home and didn't know where he was going and, you know, the whole scenario and, you know, all the things that went on. And we look at Isaac and we look at that, that whole situation with him, you know, up on Mount Moriah and the sacrifice and, 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 and these are just great patriarchs. But then we come to Jacob and, and some of his life examples aren't so stellar if you will, as the other two. But I'm thankful that Jacob is in that generational line because not all our days are so, so stellar either. We don't always have Abraham days, do we? No. I'm thankful that, that we can look at Jacob and relate to some of the blunders and decisions and, and, and bad hair days we've had and ended up having bad decisions, amen? But we still are given the same inheritance just as Abraham and Isaac were. Jacob is in there, I believe, to show us that understanding. Because I love this quote, the least and most faltering of God's children are the superiority in the presence of the most elevated in the world. The least of us is of greater superiority than the most elitist in the world. Do we see ourselves that way? Because we have this sub subconscious nature. I mean, we don't even realize we're doing it. It's part of the flesh. It's part of, of just even being aware of the flesh. But when we meet somebody, especially if it's someone of an elitist nature, we right away, without even thinking too much about it, we all put ourselves down. It's like, okay, I'm meeting the president, so, okay, what do I got to do? What do I got to say? You know, we don't even realize sometimes that we're doing it, but I love this quote. The, most, the least and most faltering of God's children are the superiority in the presence of the most elitist of the world. Oh, I, I'm telling you, we could just stop here and just go somewhere. Because do we see ourselves walking through this world with that kind of confidence, do we see ourselves as, you know, we are a covenant daughter? That's why this is called covenant daughters. Because I believe that, that one of the callings I have is for you to understand your identity. Amen. That you have a covenant. This is not a matter of what you do. It's a matter of you relating to what he did. Amen. He did it all. So there's, there's, no, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for anyone else to give you, and you shouldn't give you that in any way, shape, or form. Amen? We stand or can stand before powerful men and women, but like Jacob, when we know who we are, we'll be the blesser. We'll be the blesser. I mean, 
I mean, I'm just, you know, you don't have to raise your hand and we'll have a prayer line or anything for you, but I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, if you were to walk into your senator's office, I mean, would you just welcome, go, yeah, just give me your hand. I just want to pray for you because, you know, God wants to bless you. Amen. Now, we tend to go in there like, okay, I'm under this or I'm subservient to this or, or I'm here, I have to wait. This, our life is surrounded by that from doctor's offices to any other place. Really? But the truth of the matter is, you're more superior than anybody that has a title and a position. Because one day, you are going to return with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's going to split the eastern sky open, and we are going to come back on horses with him. So you start your horseback training. Yes, we're going to come. And the second coming is going to come. And let me tell you something. You are going to be... Your brother Jesus and you are going to come into this land and they're all going to come to one place for corporate worship. And we're all going to have roles to play in that. This is all training for that. This is all training for that. So start being the blesser. Start looking. You know, I, I actually came across, it was so timely, and I know I've given this out before, but I'm going to have it again next week. I have a list, three pages, and it doesn't even hit any level of what the Bible is consuming with, but three pages of who I am in Christ. Amen. I mean, you all need to take one of them, and you just need to like start saying who you are every day. Get yourself fueled up, and get your gas tank. You can fill your own gas tank. That's what David said. Sometimes I got to encourage myself. You don't always have your pastor with you, or the deacon, or your spouse, or your best friend. Sometimes you just got to say, okay, Sandy, we're going to the mirror, and we're going to have a little talk with each other today. Right? You're more than a conqueror. I mean, just take the thing and read it in the mirror. Right? Tell yourself who you are. Because words have power. And sometimes you being your own preacher... Just as, you know, the Bible says, my words will not return void. He didn't say he had to literally say the word. Anybody saying the word will not return void. Even you saying the word to you will not return void. Because we come in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. That's why we're not just conquerors, because there's conquerors in the world, isn't there? No, we're more than conquerors. We triumph over everything at all times and all things. And you know what? Sometimes you just have to keep saying it. I don't know about you. I was not great at math. But if I, you know, the more I memorized two, two times two is four, I finally got to understand two times two is four. And sometimes you got to say that and say that and say that to yourself. You may not feel it. You may go, oh, I, I know I'm saying this, but look at me. Uh, just stop looking. Just say it. Yes. Just say it. Because my word will not return void. It will prosper in the place I send it. Yes. Sometimes we need to send our own God's word to our own life. Amen? Yes. Okay. Let's look at Matthew 10, 17, 20 as we look at this. It says, but beware of man, for they'll deliver you to councils, scourge you in synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Mm. This is what we're talking about, isn't it? As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles, verse 19. But when they deliver you, don't worry about how you're going to speak. And I'm going to add something, or how you look. For it will be given to you in that very hour what you should speak. 
See, we want to know before we get to the governor's house. We want the speech. Okay, what am I going to say? Part two, Roman numeral three. No, no, this word says sometimes we're going to be placed before people of prominence and you're more superior than them. You know why? Because of this verse. Because he's going to tell you exactly what to say in the same hour that you need it. See, grace isn't, Lord, give me what I need tomorrow. For to, to Tell me today what you're going to do tomorrow. That's not grace. No, my grace is sufficient for thee in the same stead hour that you need it. Amen. We trust his grace, not our notebook. Amen. Exactly what's going on here. And then he goes on to say, for it is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. That drill, I'm telling you, I can feel in this room, I can feel the anointing of confidence coming up. I mean, as Ezekiel talked about, that water coming up to the ankle, to the knee, that's what's happening here. Confidence is building up like a flood in this place. And you get your hold of that, I'm going to bring them next week. I'm telling you, I think think we ought to have like, every time we meet, we ought to start declaring these things. Because it's God's word to us. And if it's his word, then it's his will. Whether you feel like it, look like it, whatever it is, it's his will. But it's also his will that everyone be saved. And you cannot be saved until you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Why? Because confession, confession transfers us from one kingdom to another. But it also works the opposite. So as the meeting ends, we're told Jacob goes out of the presence of Pharaoh and he begins to settle his family in Goshen. In Hebrew, again, that word, that word, when we see that, it said that Jacob went out. It said he went out from. The family went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Do you remember that? It's a very important word because in the Hebrew, it conveys permanence. Went out from, in the Hebrew, the transliteration of that conveys permanence. In other words, this was the one and only time that Jacob and Pharaoh would have any kind of communication according to the scripture and the understanding of it. But then again, it also demonstrates the plan to keep not only the 70 separate, but Israel, Jacob, separate from Egypt. Amen? So Joseph remains in power and cares for his family But he still has a job to do, doesn't he? He's still running Egypt in the midst of the famine. And I want us to see exactly what takes place. Bear with me because it's quite a few verses, but we're going to skim through it. Now, there was no bread in all the land. Would you say all? For the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Languished. That doesn't sound good, does it? And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now, before we go any further, before we go to verse 15, there was no coinage then. There was gold and there was silver. There was materials of value, okay? So this is when we're talking about money, there was that that kind of trading, the gold and silver and whatnot. We're going to verse what, 26. Um, So when the money failed in the land of Egypt, and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread. So there's, there's no more of this to be had. They've given all they have from a, from a responsiveness of gold, silver, and all those kinds of values, right? For they sh- Why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. 
verse 16. Then Joseph said, give your livestock. And I will give you bread for your livestock if the values and the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle, the herds, and for the donkeys. Then he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that they had. So this is moving into really quite a dimension, isn't it? When that year had ended, so we're seeing the famine going by, ticking by year after year, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Touch your neighbor and say, shouldn't have said that. Yes. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we, our land, will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die. Such a powerful statement because, you know, you can't reap without sowing, but that's for another message. That the, that the land may not be desolate. Let's continue. Then Joseph brought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And the understanding of this, it's not just Egypt, it's, it's the world. Okay, And as for the people, he moved them into cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. And they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So these were like false prophet type people that would, you know, dream interpreters and horoscope type people and all those kinds of things. Where, where are we going to? We're under 26. So verse 25. Okay. So they said, we didn't do 24? Okay, can we go back to 23? Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow in the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you will give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for your... It's this amazing wisdom going on here. And those of your household and as food for your little ones. 25 and 26. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth or 20% that would be... See, we think 10% tithe is bad... How'd you like to do 20%? Except for the land of the priests only. By the way, that's, the Holy Spirit's rebuking me. There's nothing bad about that. It's, it's 100% God's. He owns all the gold, all the silver, all the everything. He asks us to give the 10%, not because he wants to take your money. He wants, you, he wants to be your provider. And when we give him the 10%, you exchange your boss for Jesus. And Joseph made it a law over the land for the Pharaoh one-fifth, except for the land of the priests. Only did he not go to the Pharaoh's house. Okay, so let's, let's look at this. I'm going to get done this really quick. We read here how the famine is impacting the entire economy of Egypt and the surrounding nations. Okay? So what I want you to see is that Moses steps back from the story of Jacob and Pharaoh's conversation that they were having, and he backs up to the beginning of the seven-year famine. Now, we've been picking this up like in year two, going into three. But Moses, what he does here is he takes us back and gives us a, a, a view 
a bird's eye view of the whole seven-year famine. And we see that out of this, that Jacob's, that Egypt's power and wealth have reached unprecedented heights. They own it all. Everything and everybody's everything. It's absolutely amazing. From money to livestock to land and a 20% tax. They're planting so they can become even more rich because they have a 20% tax that's got to be given back to Pharaoh, right? Now, you might be thinking, wow, I mean, has Joseph lost his mind? I mean, who is, is he working for here? What is actually going on here? By the end of the famine, this is what I want you to see. No, Joseph is not being cruel. Joseph is not being unfair. Joseph is part of the 70 that we've decided is a perfect, sovereign way God uses man to fulfill his purpose. And I'll tell you exactly in this scripture how that's done. Because remember, much of that is going to fall in Israel's hands when they plunder Egypt. In the Exodus. Psalm 105, verse 37. For those of you who don't have a clue what I'm talking about, I want you to see. 105, verse 37 tells us this. It says, He also brought them out with all the gold and silver, and there was not a feeble or sick one among their tribes. He was building up this Heathen nation, why? Because of what Proverbs 13, 22 says, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Right? This is, this is a living word and, and realization here. I wish I had time to go there. Let's finish up the chapter in verse 27 to 31. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, the and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied, would you say with me, exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Remember I said he was going to live 17 more years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh. Somebody say, watch it. No. And deal, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had it, it was just getting too intense, I'm sorry. And deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. I want you to just look at the wording here. Let me lie with my fathers, then you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. So he's asking to be taken back to Canaan. How in the world is, see, he thinks, see, he dies before the famine's done. So he, or at the very end of it. So he thinks once the famine's over, little does he know he's going to be entombed for 400 years before that ever takes place. Okay? And he said, I will do as you have said. This is Joseph saying this. Then he said, Jacob, swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. We're going to end. A couple of things I want to say before we close out. The first thing is this. Here again, we see the 17 years beyond. That's, you know, we, I've been saying this, but we see it now in the scripture. And he and his family have prospered under Joseph's care in Goshen. Okay? That's what they've done. In chapter 48, next week, 
we will see that Jacob is going to pass. But in preparation for that day, he asked Joseph to make this oath that we just read. This oath ritual is specified. It's very specific to the culture of that time and the time of that time, I want to say too. Requesting another man to place his hand on his thigh in our English versions of our Bible, always translated thigh. It will always be that. But in Hebrew and in the cultural understanding of what it really meant, the word thigh really is the word Gentile area. It's his genitalia area. Now you can say watch it. Anyway, so that's, it's always translated in English to the thigh, but, but the understanding is that that's what it really is. He was to place his hand on his genital area. Why? Why? This act has such poignant and symbolism that you can't miss when you come to understand it because that area represents life. It represents life. Therefore, an oath taken this way symbolize a promise taken on the life of the person. In other words, it was him saying that if Joseph failed to keep the word, then his own life and posterity would be cut off. Amen. The promise Jacob demands is he won't be buried in Egypt. That's part two of what we just read. And Joseph swears by that agreement to his father's request. Notice, and I drew your attention to it when we read it, it said, it said that after he is lying with his fathers, then his body will be carried back to Canaan. Let me repeat it. After my body is lying with my fathers, then will you carry my body back to Canaan. Church, Jacob expected he would already be with his fathers before his physical body was ever carried back to Canaan. What does that say? That means that Jacob believed in the afterlife. Jacob believed there was a life beyond Egypt, beyond Canaan, beyond all that, and that Abraham and Isaac were already there, and others in his family line, we know some of them had passed on early, okay? So I close today... Basically, that closes the chapter, but I close today saying a couple things. You know, many of the religious Jews of this day, honestly, they don't even believe there is an afterlife. I mean, the, 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 the orthodox and whatnot, it's not, they, they do these rituals and whatnot, but they don't really believe in an afterlife. This is a great scripture if you're ever witnessing to a Jew and you find yourself in that place where they're not, you know, they don't, well, there is nothing. Well, you just say, well, you know, one of your patriarchs felt a little different than that. This is what he said. He assumed he would be with his fathers in the spirit. His body was just a secondary thing that's going to take place. And I say that to you as we sit here. Where are you with this today? You know, there's lots of different ways we come to God. You know, we come and we either think there is nothing. Some people just are atheists, don't even believe in God. There's some people who go to church all their life, many people who go to church all their life, and they think that they need to still please God. You know, that, and we do want to please God, but they think they're pleasing God earns their salvation. So they do a lot of religious things, hoping if they do enough religious things that God will be pleased and accept them. 
The word tells us that there is no name by which man can be saved. Not works, not baptisms, not uh, the sacraments, not holy communion. There's no name, not a person or an act whereby a man can be saved than through the name, except through the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. Nicodemus, a religious leader who practiced all these things, he slipped away at night and he asked Jesus, we know you're, we know you're spiritual, Jesus. We know you come from, from God because no one can do what you do. And Jesus immediately, knowing his needs, said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He didn't say, if you go to synagogue enough and if you, you, know, help, you know, carry enough, you know, wipe the communion cup off and buff it up good, you know, it shines good for me. No, none of that stuff. Buy enough prayer cards. All these things are wrong. They're false teachings. There's no way that we can be saved than through the name of Jesus. And that's what this study has been all about. Because we've been on a mission, may I remind you, since Genesis 1-1, right, for sure, uh, because it said, let us, you know, in the very beginning, it talks, God is in the very beginning of it, and it said, let us make man in our own image. All three were there. But then we got to, to the fall of man, and, and, as we have studied in Genesis 3-15, the evangelicum, let me remind you of that, was the course from that moment that Eve was deceived and Adam rebelled. From that moment on, the rest of the Bible is about getting man back into the rightful place of dominion, fruitfulness, and authority. And it took thousands of years to get there. But that name cumulated at the cross. And it cumulated even more when he was taken off the cross and put in a tomb and everybody cried a bucket of tears. Can I just say, it's Friday, but Sunday came. It's Friday, but Sunday came. And he rose from that tomb, showed himself to over 500 witnesses, and now the word of God says he's seated next to the right hand of the Father, receiving all power and all authority. And can I tell you, we're already seated in heavenly places with him. That's why we're ambassadors. We're getting orders from the sending government. Would you bow your heads to this place? So I'm wondering if you're here today, and maybe you've been in church all your life. Um, maybe, you know, this is the first time you've really heard something like this, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. John 14 tells us that no man comes to the Father unless he comes through me. Didn't say unless he comes through the church even. And the church is, is the, the greatest thing. Jesus said the gates of hell would even prevail against the church. But the church cannot get us to heaven. The church is the vehicle that takes us to the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, whereby we're saved. So if you're here today and you that you got this. Today might be like the first day, like, oh my goodness. I've been doing religious things, and here all along, Jesus is my answer. And what does he say? He just says, if you call upon me, you'll be saved. I, I mean, we're coming into this resurrection season, and there, Jesus wasn't the only one on a cross that day. There were two others. There was a thief on each side of them. 
Each of those thieves had an opportunity to have eternal life. The one refused to see Jesus for who he was. The other one started that way, and in a setting like today, his mind was changed. And he said, well, we've done wrong things, but you've done nothing. And you know what he said? Two words, only two words that day. And he couldn't have said any more. He couldn't have said any less and gotten more than he got. He said, remember me. And Jesus turned around and looked at him in his agony and his pain and in his bloodshed and his back ripped open and blood pouring down on this earth. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Because there's no way to be saved. I don't care how many prayer cards you have. I don't care how, if you've been in church since you, you, were, you your mother gave birth in the church. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you got that today, in fact, let's just say this prayer all together because what he's asking us is to come to him as children and say something like this. Father God in heaven, your love amazes me. Even when I was a sinner, you sent your son to die for me. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. And today, I give my life to you. Help me to understand more of it. Before today, I understand what you did. Would you all stand with me? If that's you, if that's you and you said that prayer today, and, or you're visiting, you're visiting with us, can you please see me at the close of the service because I want to put a Bible in your hand and walk you through that. And again, visitors, I'd like to meet with you. And again, if you said that prayer, and this was the very first time, we all said it, but if it was the first time you said it and you got it, I'd certainly want to meet with you. Amen? So, Lord, I just thank you for this amazing book that you place in our hands. You know, we're thankful, Lord, that no one's going to come bust in the door and arrest us and take our word and take our Bibles and rip crosses off. Thank you that we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And yet, Lord, the persecution is, is mounting up more and more. So, Lord, as we look at this narrative today in the 47th chapter of this book of Genesis, Lord, um, help us to, to be that ambassador that you've called us to be. As we leave here today, may we just not go out and just get back to our normal errands. And, Lord, help us to see the thing that matters most to you is not cars. It's not furniture. It's not, it's not even groceries. I, I, I see the picture of Joseph he took, he, he's a picture of you. He took all that stuff so he could give them life. That's what matters. The money doesn't matter. The, you know what matters? What, you, what Joseph gave them was seed. May we sow seed into your kingdom to bring the lost home. You've come to seek and save those who are lost, and that ought to be our mission too. So send us out in the power of your might. Holy Spirit, I just, I just adore you. We adore you. And we adjure you to just come and fill us fresh and new in this place right now. Blow upon us. That we will walk out of here like the army 
of confident women that we have been called to be. And no matter who we stand before, you will always provide what we need when we need it in the same said hour. We release our trust in you right now. In Jesus' name, let's give him a round of applause. And you have a wonderful week, and we will see you next week.